wish that Christmas lasts forever Wrap the world in snowy white Everyone could be together Staying warm around the fire It's a picture-perfect moment Every ornament in place Sweet as cinnamon and sugar Knowing Santa's on his way Good morning, everyone. Uh, if we've never met before, my name is Kevin, and I'm one of the pastors on staff. Thanks for coming out and joining us. I uh, also want to welcome those of you online as well. We're glad you guys are with us, too. So uh, when I was growing up, I lived in a house that was across the street from a church. And in the winters, they would always plow the snow into these giant piles at the end of one of the parking lots. And the parking lot was right across the street from my house. And so I'm sure that for most of the adults uh, at the church, this snow is a giant inconvenience, right? Someone had to pay a bunch of money to have someone plow that snow to the end, and it took up a whole bunch of, of valuable parking spots that they probably needed. But as a kid, as a kid, this giant pile of snow was awesome, right? This was like a winter playground for me and my friends, and we would do things like ride our sleds down those hills. We would get uh, shovels, and we would dig out forts and these like tunnel systems in these piles of snow. And of course, we would play the classic game of King of the Mountain. So I pulled last night too. How many, how many of you guys have ever played the game King of the Mountain before? Okay, someone's even clapping for King of the Mountain. They're, they were probably good at the game. Um, so if you've never played the game King of the Mountain, the rules are pretty simple. Uh, it's basically an all-out wrestling match to see who can occupy the highest point on the hill or the mountain. And if you are a person at the top of the hill, then it is your job to push and shove and do whatever you can to everyone else, push them back down the hill so that you can maintain your your position as king of the hill. And if you are someone at the bottom, your sole mission is to uh, get to the top, to dispose of whoever is up there with whatever means you can so that you can then uh, take over the throne and you can become king of the mountain. And what I remember most about playing this game as a kid is that this game was not for the faint at heart, right? This game, for obvious reasons, it favored the larger and stronger kids, neither of which I was. Um, And what I remember was we used to play this game at school as well, but it quickly got banned at recess uh, because often there were kids tumbling down the thing and there's usually a nice uh, pavement ground to break your fall. And so kids were often getting hurt over and over and eventually it it got banned from recess, which made the pile across the street from my house all the better because the schools didn't control that pile. And so me and my friends, we could keep playing King of the Hill. Now, as I was thinking back on on this game as a kid, I realized that I think many of us, we actually still play this game as adults. Now, the mountain might look a little bit different, and the type of force we use might not be the same, but the desire to be on top, to have the power, and to be in control is pretty much the same. I think we see this in our work environments where we see coworkers battling each other to fight over positions and to climb the corporate ladder. I think we see this in our politics where we will see people do just about anything it takes to find their way to the top. I think we see this in our entertainment industry with shows like Game of Thrones leading the way, right? What is Game of Thrones if it is not a giant game of King of the Mountain, right? Battling to see who can be 
in control. And just like the kids' version, the adult version, it also favors the stronger and the more aggressive players. And just like the kids' version, people will do just about anything it takes to get to or to stay on the top. So right now we find ourselves in a Christmas series that we are calling Beyond a Season. And if you have been with us for the last few weeks, here's where we've been. Uh, two weeks ago, we, we looked at something we called More Than a Fairy Tale. And what we did is we looked at all of the different prophecies that you find laced kind of throughout the Christmas narrative. And we talked about the fact that Matthew intentionally put those things in and highlighted those things because he knew, he knew that like, hey, I'm sharing this, this gospel, this story about Jesus, and I'm gonna go on and I'm gonna say some pretty crazy things about this guy, some pretty unbelievable things. And so I need to make sure that I start by giving some very tangible evidence, some things that give some credibility to my listeners so they know that the thing I'm about to say that Jesus is more than just a fairy tale, but there was some evidence to that. And so that's where we were at two weeks ago. And then last week, Tony talked about the humility of Jesus. And so if you're, if you're tracking along kind of with the narrative of where we're heading through this, if you hear all these prophecies, so if there's really were like hundreds of prophecies that Jesus fulfilled, then the next question that might enter your mind is, well, then why did Jesus, why did so many people miss him? Right? If there was all this evidence, why did so many people miss Jesus? And one of the reasons they missed him was because he showed up in such an unexpected way. Right? They had all these prophecies, and they were expecting this conquering king. They were expecting someone like David who was going to bring in his armies. He was going to lead the charge, and he was going to overthrow Rome. And so they were expecting this, and then they got something very different. They got a humble servant, which was not, not what they were thinking. And so today, what we're going to do is we're going to talk about King of the Mountain, which sounds like a silly thing, but what we're going to find is we're going to find is we're going to look back in the Christmas story, and we're going to find that there is a powerful king named King Herod who is playing a real-life game of King of the Mountain, and he's doing it with the baby that we celebrate at Christmas. And as strange as it might sound to play King of the Mountain with a baby, I think by the end of our time together, what we're going to realize is that we often play a very similar game with Jesus. So that's where we're headed today. So if you have a Bible with you, you guys can join me in Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2, we're going to be on page 783. If you don't have a Bible, you can find one under the seat back in front of you. And uh, if you're a guest with us and you don't own a Bible and you would uh, like one, you can just take that Bible home with you and you can consider that a gift from us. So Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 1, we read this. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And so as Matthew starts off his account in chapter two, one of the first things he tells us is that Jesus was born during the time of King Herod. Now, history will record for us that this King Herod was, Herod was also known as Herod the Great and that he ruled from roughly 37 BC until about 4 AD. So that was kind of, had a good run there. And one of the interesting facts that I learned about King Herod this week, something I didn't know, is that unlike the majority of kings that we find throughout history, that Herod was actually not born a king because of his family line, but rather Herod was appointed king of Judea by the Roman Senate for political reasons. Something I didn't know until this week. And while being appointed king of Rome, while it was quite an honor, and while it came with tremendous privileges, it also had some downsides. 
And one of those downsides was that when you are appointed king as opposed to being born king, well, that means that you can also be unappointed king, right? In the same way as Rome quickly gave him this title, Rome had the ability at any given moment that they could take that title away from him. And so as you can imagine, this led Herod to become extremely paranoid about anyone who might want to take his position on the top of the mountain. And because of this reality, history actually records for us that Herod had a tendency to not just be uh, nervous about them, but he had a tendency to actually eliminate any person that he viewed as a potential threat to his throne. Like how one commentator put it, he said it like this. He said, Herod's later years, as Josephus records them, were dominated by the obsessive defense of his throne. As you continue reading a little bit of the history about this, here's some of the things you learned, that you learned that uh, Herod would go on to kill all of the remaining members of the Hasmonean family, which would have been the biggest threat to his throne. And included in that was his, bro- his own brother-in-law, his mother-in-law, his favorite wife. I didn't choose that term. That's how it was recorded. So there's a lot of questions when you see favorite wife. Uh, three of his eldest sons, And it also talked about a time where there was a conspiracy about some people trying to take over his throne, and he executed all 10 conspirators and their entire families, right? And so as you can see, right, Herod, Herod is famous for playing a real-life game of king of the mountain. And he was willing to do whatever it took to stay on top of that mountain, including killing his own wife and three of his own sons. Now, the second uh, person or group of people that Matthew introduces us to uh, is a group of people that he refers to as the Magi. Now, we don't know a ton about the Magi in the story, but the word that is used in the original language is this. It's the word magos, which means magician or wise man, magician or wise man. Now, what we do know about the Magi is that they were known for being uh, incredibly well-educated men or scholarly men. They were often experts in a whole bunch of different areas, which usually included things like astrology, which would be the study of stars, and in the interpretation of dreams. One of the things that uh, we know from history is that the term Magi originally came uh, from Persia, and it was part of a Persian priestly caste who played an important role in being an advisor to the king. Now, probably the most famous magi that we have in the Bible, someone you may have heard of, would be Daniel, and this would have come during the time when he was living in exile under Babylonian and, again, Persian rule. And so if you think back to our Daniel series that we did this summer, uh, Daniel would have been considered by many to be a magi, someone who is an expert in either astrology or the interpretation of dreams, right, who was often there in a position, a high position, who was advising a king, right? So Daniel would have fit this category. And then the last thing that we know about Magi from the book of Matthew here is that the word magos, we know that that word is plural, meaning there were more than one of them. Now, most of us have grown up with the Christmas stories where we are told that there are three wise men, and the reason that we assume there are three wise men is because later in the story, there are three gifts that are presented. And so people have connected the dots and said, well, there's wise men that come, there's a group, there's three gifts, there must be three of them. But in reality, Matthew does not actually tell us how many there are. And most of the commentators I looked at this week, they actually all think that there's a good chance there were more than three of them, that there would have been a group of them that traveled together. So with that kind of as the background, I want you guys to imagine the scene with me. You are King Herod. In all your insecurities and in all your paranoia about losing your throne, you have already killed your brother-in-law, 
your mother-in-law, your wife, and three of your own sons. And one day, one day some magi, right, some people who are known for being incredibly wise and smart and well-educated, one day some magi, they walk into your palace and they ask the question, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? Put yourself in Herod's shoes. What is going through your mind right now? Right, if you were King Herod in that moment, all kinds of warning bells are going off in your brain. Your defenses are going up and you are getting ready for a fight. Right, you are ready to do whatever it takes to keep and to maintain your position on the top of that mountain. I love the way uh, Tim Keller put it. He wrote this in his book, Hidden Christmas. He said it like this. He says, when you walk into a palace and ask, where is the king? It is going to alarm the person currently sitting on the throne, right? And when you understand the context, when you understand the context of this story, these wise men, they did more than just ask, where is the king? They asked the question, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews, right? They're not looking for the one who was appointed king of the Jews. They're looking for the true king. And so how does Herod react? Well, he responds as we would expect him to respond. Verse three, when Herod heard this, he was disturbed, right? Which is probably the understatement of the century. Herod was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. Now, we don't actually know why all Jerusalem with him was disturbed, but I was talking about this with a few of the pastors and uh, there's a good chance, right, if any of you guys have been in an environment where the boss is like having a bad day and you're just nervous, like what's he gonna do, right? If you know King Herod and you know what's happening, well, I can imagine why all of Jerusalem was disturbed because they're like, what is this crazy dude gonna do? Like, how is he going to respond? So verse four, when he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born, in Bethlehem. In Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. And so upon hearing news of a potential competition, Matthew tells us that Herod, what he does is he kind of calls the Old Testament scholars of his day together to find out where the Messiah is to be born. And as we talked about in the first week of this series, the priests and the teachers of the law, they all know the prophecies. They all know that if this, this baby who was born, if this really is the Messiah, if this really is the one who was to come, they all know, well, there's only one place he could be. And so like collectively, they all point the king to Bethlehem. And so Herod, he contrives this plan and he decides he's gonna try and trick the Magi into finding the exact location of the child 
So he sends them out as like undercover agents, thinking they don't know that they're undercover agents, uh, so that he too can go and worship him. But after finding Jesus and presenting the gifts, Matthew tells us that God warns the Magi in a dream. And so the Magi, they ignore Herod's orders, and they just kind of secretly and quietly go back to where they're from via a secret route. Now, as you can imagine, when Herod finds out about this, right, he, he is furious. And as you can also imagine, from what we know about Herod, Herod is not the type of guy who is going to give up easily. So here's what happens next, verse 13. When they, referring to the Magi, had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so it was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt, I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was, fulfilled through the prophet Jerem- then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted, because they are no more. And so when Herod realizes that he has been outwitted by the Magi, he decides to take a much more direct approach, right? No more spies, no more games. He simply orders the massacre of every male child in Bethlehem that was two years old and under. Now, scholars will point out that the number of kids uh, in this instance, it's often been exaggerated over time. Uh, They would say that the village probably would have been about 1,000 people, and so they would estimate somewhere around, there were probably somewhere around 20 or 30 boys who would have fit Herod's criteria. And so again, we see that Herod, man, Herod is willing to do whatever it takes to protect his throne. And it leads to what must have been an absolutely horrific moment for the people of Bethlehem. And so I want to pause here for a moment and I want to lean in and ask the question, why? Right? Why would Herod go to such lengths to eliminate a baby. Because on the surface, there is absolutely no reason a man of this kind of power and authority should even care about the birth of a baby, right? Clearly, Jesus poses no physical threat to Herod at this point. And at the same time, I don't think Jesus posed a real political or social threat at this point either. Right at this point, Jesus had no followers He has preached no sermons, he has said nothing controversial, and he has done nothing extraordinary, right? He is a baby laying in a manger, and although Jesus would go on to do those things, nobody knows that yet, and he hasn't done any of those things yet. And so again, why is Herod so threatened by him? As I was looking at the, the Gospel of Luke and kind of how these stories fit together, I was reminded that Jesus had a cousin named John the Baptist who was born just six months prior to Jesus, And the Bible records that John would grow up to be one of the greatest prophets in history, that he would go on to say a bunch of controversial things, that he would kind of upset the apple cart, if you were, that he would would say things that would bother the leaders and some of the kings and the officials. And if you go go on later in his life, you realize that John, he actually later in his life, he calls out one of Herod's sons for having an immoral marriage. And it actually ends up that Herod's son actually kills John over this. But when John is born... 
Herod could care less. Herod doesn't even notice or pay attention to it. And so why all the fuss about Jesus? Well, I think if you zoom out a little bit, it actually starts to become pretty clear. And it's because both the wise men and all the prophecies, was because they declared that Jesus was a king. And any time a new king shows up on the scene, it is always a threat to whomever is currently sitting on the throne. You see, if Jesus had grown up to be the next great rabbi, Herod would not have cared. There were a lot of rabbis in Herod's day. And even if Jesus would have grown up and turned out to be the next great prophet, a prophet like, like Elijah, someone who was just one of those, went down in history, I, I, I don't think Herod would have lost any sleep over that either. But for all the things that Herod got wrong in his life, I think he got at least one thing right. And Herod knew that Jesus was more than the next religious leader. He knew that he was more than a prophet. Herod knew that Jesus was the king. And kings, kings threaten whomever is currently sitting on the throne. So right now we find ourselves uh, one week away from Christmas. And the question that Herod was confronted with, I think, is a question that we are actually confronted with as well. And the question is this. It's how will you choose to respond to the arrival of the king? How will you choose to respond to the arrival of the king? Because the reality is, Jesus is still the king. And he's not just any king. The Bible teaches us that he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords, that Jesus is actually God himself and that there is no higher authority that exists and that one day, we're told one day, every knee will bow before him. And in the same way that Jesus was a threat to Herod's kingdom, for those of us who like to be in control and like to sit on the top of our little mountains, I think that Jesus, I think he's a threat to our kingdoms as well. And so as we find ourselves confronted with the reality of King Jesus, I think there are several different responses that we could have to him, right? There are several different approaches that we could choose to take. Let me just walk you through a few of them. Here's the first one. I think the first thing we could choose to do is we could choose to resist him, right? We could choose to resist him. I think the first choice any of us have when presented with a rival king is to do the exact same thing Herod did, Herod did and that is to resist him. It is to play king of the mountain and it is to use whatever power we have to push him out of our lives so that we can maintain our position of being in control. We talked about this a few weeks ago, but I think there are some people who have simply decided that Jesus will not be part of their life and there is no amount of evidence you can give them that will convince them otherwise. Now, there's a lot of reasons people might kind of position themselves in that place. Uh, for some people, some people do this because of some sort of pain or, or hurt they've experienced in the past. Maybe they lost a loved one and they, they kind of blame God for that and so they're keeping God at a distance. Maybe for, for some people they have been hurt by a Christian or, or maybe a church environment that they grew up in and so again, because that, that environment caused them pain, they just say, you know what, right? Like I'm keeping you, I'm keeping that at a distance, right? Which on some levels makes a lot of sense, right? All of us do that, right? When we have been hurt by things, we don't wanna let those things close. We want to wanna keep them at a distance. But if I could be honest, I, I think the primary reason that most people choose to resist Jesus is not because of some bad experience in their past, 
but it's because they want to be in control. Right? I think some people want to have control because it's my life and I want to do what I want to do. And I don't want anyone else, whether that's my parents, my teachers, my boss, even Jesus. I don't want anyone else telling me what I should do. And some people do that because they like the power and they want to be in control. And some people do that because they're tired of being controlled. Right? Some people have maybe grown up in an environment where they've been told what to do or maybe controlled or manipulated by someone for so long that they're just like, I, I can't have anyone else telling me what to do. I just need to be free of that. And in either case, the result's the same. When they encounter King Jesus, their natural response, it is to resist him. It is to push him away, to push him to the outskirts of their life so that they can continue to sit on their little throne. So the first option we have when confronted with King Jesus is we could choose to resist him. But there's a second way I think people tend to respond to Jesus, and that's this. I think other people, they try to soften him. They try and soften him. And so while some people, will, they will like outright reject Jesus, other people will try and soften him or lessen him to something, something lower than a king. And so some people, again, they won't reject him, but they will turn him into a good guy instead. Or they, some people will acknowledge, you know what, I think he was a great teacher. I think he had great morality. I think some people might even go as far as saying he was a great prophet. Right? There are actually a lot of other major religions that would say all of those things. They would say, you know what, Jesus, great guy, great teacher, great morality. We even think he was a, one of the God's prophets. But they will stop there. And they will not go as far as acknowledging him as king or lord of their life. Because the moment you move Jesus out of the category of king into something else, into moral teacher or religious leader, well, now his teachings, well, they become optional. The moment you remove the title of king and you lessen him to another category, well, Jesus is now at best, he's someone we look to for advice. Maybe he's like a life coach. His teachings are no longer commands. They're just good moral lessons that we can choose to listen to or we could choose to ignore. And when you make Jesus less than a king, it's also easy to dismiss him because when he becomes just another voice among the many, it's easy to push him to the fringes of our life. It's easy to get too busy for him, to run out of time for him. And to be honest, it's, it's easy to forget about him. And so while there are a lot of people who will celebrate the birth of Jesus at Christmas this year, I'm not sure all of them are gonna celebrate him as king. In the words of the famous theologian, Ricky Bobby, <laughs> I like the Christmas Jesus best. Right, when you say, when I'm saying grace, when you say grace, you can say it to grown up Jesus or teenage Jesus or bearded Jesus or whomever you want. If you've seen the movie as ridiculous and as silly as that scene is, I, I think there's actually some truth in that, right? I think a lot of people, they like the Christmas version of Jesus best, right? They like baby Jesus, who wouldn't? It's far easier to follow a version of Jesus that is cute and cuddly and came to save us but hasn't offended us or told us what to do yet. We like that version. But the problem with this kind of thinking is that the Christmas Jesus, he's already the king. And kings, kings always threaten the people who want to be in control and who are sitting on the throne. Which leads to the final way that we can choose to respond to him. And the final way is this. It's we can choose to submit to him. We can choose to submit to him. I think for a lot of us, we would say, oh yeah, yeah, that's me. That's, that's what I would choose to do because it is easy to say that. 
And it is really, really hard to live that out. Because in order for God to truly be king of your life, it means that you, that me, means that we're not. In order for Jesus to take his place on the throne, it means that you need to willingly relinquish that position. You need to give up control. And the idea that Jesus wants to be our savior, well, that part is easy. If Jesus wants to give up his life and die on a cross so that I can be saved, well, there's a lot of people who are happy to let Jesus do that. But the idea that we need to submit ourselves under King Jesus, well, that part tends to be a little bit more resistance to that part. And I think this is where some of us who would call ourselves follower of Jesus, I think this is where some of us, we actually start playing king of the mountain with Jesus too. And so instead of giving him full control of our lives, instead of giving him full access to the throne, we try and share it with him. We're like, hey, Jesus, what if we did like a, a co-kingship kind of thing? You guys want, like, we could team up on this. I got some ideas and I really want to, right? Like we, we try and find a way to like share the throne with him. So some of us will give him control of certain areas of our life, but not all areas. The parts of Jesus that tell us to love everyone and be kind to everyone, like, well, yeah, yeah, that sounds good. You, that, you run with that plan. That's a great plan, Jesus. But when Jesus says he wants to have control over your money or your sexuality, or he wants you to forgive that person that hurt you real bad, like, ah, you know, I, I'm not so sure I want to give you that. I, I think I want to stay king in those areas. I also think submitting under a king, I think that's a really hard concept for a lot of us to wrap our brain around because that's not something most of us have ever actually experienced. Right, the vast majority, majority of us in this room, we have lived our entire lives in a democracy where opinion matters, where we can vote out leaders we don't like, and where we can challenge decisions that we disagree with. Right, that has been our entire existence. But when you live under the authority of a true king, well, you're living in a very different reality. Because a king's orders are not things you question or debate or consider. Right, when a true king makes a declaration, what you do is you submit to it. And I understand that that word submit, right, that word is a little cringy, right? Like no one in here is excited about the term submit. We're not like, yeah, like it, it, it makes us cringe a little bit. Like we, we recoil, we pull away from that word. But I think the reason that that word makes us cringe is because we are used to having to submit to bosses and leaders who are fallen and broken, right? We're used to having to submit to people like Herod who will lie and deceive and harm. We are used to leaders who sit on top of the mountain and they wield their authority and they use their power to push the rest of us back down so that they can stay in their position on top. But as Tony talked about last week, Jesus, he is a very different type of king, right? For all the ways that we tend to play king of the mountain, Jesus does not play this game. When Jesus was sitting on top of the mountain, he did not use his power to serve himself or to maintain his position. Jesus actually volunteered to lower himself. He actually chose to step down the mountain so that he could serve those of us at the bottom. And now that the Father has exalted Jesus back to the top of the mountain, what Jesus does is he actually invites us to submit himself to him. Right? He doesn't force us to follow him. He gives us the choice. And the question is, how will you choose to respond 
to the arrival of the king. So with that, I'm going to invite the band back up. And while they're coming, I want to leave you guys with one final question. And so as I said at the start, we are one week away from Christmas, the day on which millions of people all around the world are going to celebrate the birth of Jesus. So the question that I want to leave you with is this. It's which version of Jesus do you celebrate at Christmas? Which version of Jesus do you celebrate at Christmas? Right, so most of you go back to your house, you probably have a little Jesus in a manger, a little baby Jesus in a manger somewhere by your mantle, or maybe you have one hanging on your tree, right? Like, what kind of baby is laying in your manger? Is he the king? Or are you celebrating something less than that? And regardless of maybe what you have done in the past or how you have responded in the past, I think the real question is, how do you want to celebrate and respond to him moving forward? Because even if you have spent your whole life ignoring him and resisting him, it's never too late to acknowledge the king. And even if you are someone who you spent most of your life uh, diminishing him and kind of reducing him to something less so that you could, you could kind of maintain your position, right? Again, it's never too late to acknowledge the king. Regardless of where you are in your journey, it is never too late to see Jesus as the king of kings that he truly is. And I think, I think once you start to understand the type of king that he is, the type of king that Tony talked about last week, well, I think that's a game changer. And I think when you see him for that kind of king, the idea of submitting to him and submitting under him, I think that actually starts to make a whole lot of sense. And so this year at Christmas, the question I want you to ask is which version of Jesus are you going to celebrate this year? Is it the king or is it something else? Let me pray for us. Father, you are good. And uh, we are incredibly grateful that you are, in fact, the king. God, I ask that you would forgive us for the moments when we treat you as anything less than that. When we diminish you, when we downplay you, when we try to do things like co-share things with you when, God, we just need to rightly submit to you. God, I am also incredibly grateful that you are not a king like the other kings that I know of. God, I am grateful that you are not a king who plays king of the mountain, that you're not trying to shove us back down, but you are a king who chose to serve and to love and to come all the way down the mountain because you actually cared about us. So God, this year as we prepare ourselves for Christmas, we prepare ourselves for the day that we uh, celebrate your arrival, God, may we see this less as a birthday party and more as the arrival of a king that's gonna change everything. Father, you are good and we love you and we worship you now. It's in your son's name, amen.